Good morning, church family. Hi, Sarah. Um, am I on? Can you hear me? I am. I'm growing. I'm. I can boom too. Hello. Good to see you all. <clears throat> Uh, before I begin, I just want, um, we've got lots of little pieces, and I've got to keep them all in my head, and some of, them, some of them are quite important, other things are less important. But this is an important one, and it's an invitation for you to pray with us and also to celebrate. Um, our, some of you who received the e-bulletin will see that we are hiring an accountant, and that means that we are going to be out an accountant. And I just want to mention that uh, Tammy, where are you, Tammy? You don't have to stand up. Tammy right here. Tammy served us really faithfully for seven years, and she and her family are moving back to America. And so we are gutted to lose you. So all of you, so Trevor, Tammy, Tadden, Tinley, your cats, Tashi, and Timbit. Okay. Um, so the whole family and cats are moving back. We have been immensely blessed to have Tammy serve us these past seven years. We'll clap for her in a second. It's been a huge blessing for us to have you with us. Um, we are huge. It's a huge loss for our community to do this. And so we are sad about this. But please uh, pray for them as they prepare their move this month. Uh, and as we uh, replace, re she's irreplaceable, as we find someone else <laughs> uh, to sit at Tammy's desk. So would we please just applaud for um, <laughs> Tammy. <clears throat> okay. All right. Hey, let's, uh, let's continue our series in Old Testament characters. And we began with this guy, Abraham, who starts off the story, and then we looked at his son, Isaac, who was a bit wacky, and then last week we looked at Jacob, who was a trickster, he was trouble. And today we get to look at one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, who figures prominently in the last mm, 10, 15 chapters, 10 chapters of Genesis, uh, a huge and a hugely important story. Um, with Abraham, we looked at faith. With Isaac, we looked at fear. With Jacob, we looked at, what did we look at? Uh, blessing. That's right. Blessing was the focus on that one. And today, I'd like us to uh, kind of tune our attention to wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from studying Joseph, and I'd like us to learn some lessons in wisdom. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Bible story will know that one of the biggest events in the Bible, one of the most important events in the Bible, is the story of the Exodus, where they flee Egypt. They escape from the Egyptians. Well, Joseph's story is the one that tells you how they got to Egypt in the first place. And so this is a pretty important part in the Bible story. So the significant plan, the plan today is I'm going to spend a significant amount of our time simply telling Joseph's story, because it's an interesting story. We're just going to go through the story for most of our time today. And then I'm going to wrap up with two lessons in wisdom that we can learn from Joseph's life. Okay? So the story followed by some lessons in wisdom. So let's talk about Joseph's life. Um, and to do that, we have to talk about Jacob. Remember Jacob from last week, the trickster. Yaakov means he tricks people. And he has 12 sons. And his 12 sons become the 12 patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it's a complex story, um, but the sons are born to him through his two wives and two concubines. And so we're going to run through the birth narrative for a moment here. Remember that Jacob, he loved Rachel. He thought she was lovely, and he wasn't so keen on Leah. In fact, nobody was that keen on Leah, so her father Laban had to trick Jacob into marrying her. This is not a good setup for a happy marriage. Okay, there's trouble on the horizon. So Jacob loves Rachel. And then one of the most funny or bittersweet or weird stories is uh, the biblical description of his home strife while his wives bargain with, the, they fight with each other over Jacob. 
And they, it's very, very odd. We're going to go through some of this right now. Most of this comes from Genesis 30, but I won't read it. So I'm going to put the names on the screen so you follow along. So Leah, uh, the wife, has four sons in a row. She has Reuben, uh, followed by Simeon, followed by Levi, followed by Judah. And if, you're, if you know your tribes of Israel, these are the Reubenites, Simeonites, Levites, and Judites, right? They come from these four, all right? And then it says that Rachel is barren. She can't have kids. And the reason the Bible suggests that she's barren is because Jacob favors her with love. She doesn't get kids. So she gets Jacob's favor, but she doesn't get any blessing. Leah doesn't have any of Jacob's favor, but she gets lots of kids. This is how it's presented to us. So um, because Rachel's a bit frustrated that she can't have kids, she arranges for Jacob to sleep with her maid, Bilhah. And so Bilhah then gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. All right, two more tribes. Leah retaliates by arranging for Jacob to sleep with her maid, Zilpah. So Jacob's just being kind of passed around here. He has no control over his home life. This is the implication. And Zilpah conceives two kids, Gad, followed by Asher. Okay? And then Leah bargains for rights for Jacob with some vegetables. Okay? She pays vegetables to get Jacob for the night. It's very, it's, uh, Jacob's not in control of his life. I'm telling you this. And then she gives birth to Issachar, followed by Zebulun. Okay, so here's how these all come about. And at long last, Rachel conceives and gives birth to her first son, Joseph. Okay, at the end of it. He's number 11 on this family string of kids. Now, I go through this uh, for a couple of reasons. First, because it's good for us to review how uh, 10 or 11 of the tribes of Israel came into existence. But more importantly, if you don't understand that Joseph is the eldest son of the favorite wife, a lot of what comes next won't make sense to you. He's the eldest son of the favorite wife. And then one final piece makes this kind of bittersweet as well. Right after Jacob wrestles with God, the passage we read last week with Pastor Brendan, right after that event, uh, Rachel has one more child, Benjamin, and then dies in childbirth. So um, Jacob, who has favoritism for his beloved wife, Jacob, who has this sense of burden, who, not sense of burden, he's, you'd think that after the business with his own dad, remember that Isaac is passing around blessings all kind of willy-nilly, like Isaac loves Esau and has no patience for Jacob, and then uh, his mom has to arrange a kind of sneaky way for Jacob to get a blessing. You'd think that growing up in a house with that much bald favoritism, Jacob would do better with his own kids. He doesn't. He just shows favoritism to his favorite kid. And it's kind of sad how this affects everybody else in the family. So here's the 12 tribes of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. Not quite the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, this, is, this is on the quiz later. Levi doesn't inherit land because they come prophets. Joseph has two kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they become half tribes. Uh, so there's kind of like 13 tribes. Don't worry about it. This is it's okay. Genesis 30, and then you can follow along with the rest. Now, Jacob's fiery and Jacob's clever, and really, you want him on your side and like a soccer match because he's going to be the guy who irritates you the most because he'll kick and cleat and do all sorts of nasty stuff, and you want him on your team and not on the other team doing that stuff to you. Um, but he's, he does this terrible stuff with favoritism. And then after the favorite wife dies, it looks like the favoritism gets expended even more. The love he extends to Rachel gets passed on to Joseph and not the other boys. The other boys begin to feel pretty left out. And so Jacob, Joseph is Jacob's favorite. <laughs> we don't get to say this. Like, I've got four kids. You don't get to look at me and say, which one's your favorite? Oh, well, 
right now I like this one and not the other ones. Um, and that, we don't get to do that, or we try not to do that, or if you're doing that, stop. But um, <laughs> Jacob does it. And Jacob doesn't just say, he shows it. And so here's a, um, we're going to read several passages from Genesis, but let me look with me now at Genesis chapter 37, and this is going to be uh, verses 2 through 4. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So the brothers aren't doing a very good job. Now Israel loved Joseph, Jacob Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic, right, a multicolored coat. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers because he's wearing this multicolored coat to show the favoritism, right? He's got clothes that show that he's better than anybody else. And they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. And the dad seems wonderfully oblivious to the fact that, here, wear this beautiful cloak. And the brothers are like, what are you doing? And they get bothered. Now, perhaps you've heard this cloak of many colors. I've told by, by authoritative sources that it was, in fact, red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet and black and ochre and peach and ruby and olive and violet and fawn and lilac and gold and chocolate and mauve and cream and crimson and silver and rose and azure and lemon and russet and gray and purple and white and pink and orange and blue. One person has studied Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. If there hadn't been Summer Jam this past week, we probably would have put on that production this Sunday morning. It would have been more interesting. The Bible doesn't tell us at all what the color coat looked like. We actually don't know anything about it other than that it was this brilliant robe that marked Joseph as special and marked him as hateful. The favoritism made him loathsome. And so the ten older brothers hate him for it. And the cloak isn't the only reason they hate him. If you look back at the kind of subtext, Joseph gives a bad report. In other words, they're doing a bad job of managing their dad's business. They're not very good at it. And Joseph, it looks like, is good at it. He's at least reliable. He's kind of a tattletale. He's not very likable, is he? He gives back a bad report about these things. And so Jacob sends Joseph to go report on his brothers. Go look after them. See what's going on. So the youngest is now in charge of the other ten. This is getting worse. And he's already of such character, he's more trustworthy. And they're angry about the fact they're being reported on. And they're angry about the favoritism. And they're angry about, apparently, a lot of different things. And so they concoct a plan to kill him. They're going to wipe him out, rub him out of the process. Well, in the middle of the plot, Reuben, the eldest, tries to talk them off of it. Let's just throw him in a pit, okay? <laughs> Slightly better. And um, instead, they do that. That's good. And then Judah comes up with a plot, and he says, instead of the pit, how about we sell him into slavery? And this is what they do. So Reuben's off doing something else. They sell him into slavery for 20 shekels, which isn't that much money. And then he's off, and they're like, great, he's gone. And what they do is they take the cloak, right? And they tear it, and they cover it in blood. And then they take it to their dad and say, look what happened to your, your younger son. And this, there's some Bible parallels here, because remember that Jacob deceived his father Isaac by wearing uh, a cloth that was hairy. And now his sons deceive him with the cloth that was worn by his boy. So Jacob is reaping what he sowed in his life. And so Jacob's gutted. He's grieved. And it looks like he's not going to recover from some of this stuff. And the brothers kind of feel bad, but they're also happy to be done with the trickster. So Jacob, I'm sorry, Joseph then gets sold into slavery. 
So he's been betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, and now he's a slave on his way to Egypt. And Joseph sold into a slave, sold as a slave into Egypt, prefigures all of Israel becoming slaves in Egypt. And this is, this is part of the story of the Bible. So he ends up at the house of a guy named Potiphar, where, because he's so competent, he ends up in charge of the guy's house. He's the best slave in the house. He ends up in charge of everything. He's managing. In fact, he's managing it so well that Potiphar doesn't have to bother with anything. Uh, and he's managing it so well that other people start to notice how competent he is, like Potiphar's wife. I'm not very good at this, but if I, if I could, I would waggle my eyes. Potiphar's wife, you know, uh, 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 she gets interested in him. And she starts making advances. She's like, hey, you're young and handsome. Let's do this thing. And he says, no, I'm in charge of my master's house. How could I take advantage of his wife? Wow, what an upright guy. And she keeps pursuing and he keeps running. And finally, she arranges it so there's nobody in the house. And she tries to make her advances on him. And she grabs his cloak and he runs away. Once again, there's a cloak being used in Joseph's life. And he runs away, leaving the cloak behind. And now she's angry with him because of his competence and because of his uprightness. And she's so angry, she, pays, she lays an accusation at him. The Hebrew tried to assault me. Here's his cloak. Second time, the cloak is used as evidence against him in his life. And so what happens? He gets thrown into prison. Okay? So Genesis 39, verses 19 to 23, gives us this next bridge of the story. Now, when his master, this is Potiphar, heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. So we don't know how long he's there for. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Now, this is the third time Joseph finds himself in charge. He's in charge of his family's flocks. And then he's in charge of Potiphar's house. And now he's in charge of the jail. Everywhere Joseph goes, he ends up in charge of things because of his character and his competence. It's pretty amazing that he ends up running the jail. While he's in the jail, two officials get thrown down. We don't know how long he's in jail. They don't tell us. Two officials from Pharaoh's court, the cupbearer, the guy who brings the cup, and the bread maker. And both of them are there, and they each have a dream. And they're sitting in jail saying, wow, I have this weird dream. And Joseph says, you know, I can kind of interpret dreams because it's one of his skills, one of the things that irritates him about his brothers earlier. And um, he says, tell me the dream, and he interprets. And he gives a favorable interpretation to the cupbearer. He says, in a few days, you're going to be released. And then he says, when you're released, please remember me to Pharaoh because I'm not supposed to be here. Um, and then to the bread baker, he's like, he's like, hey, that was good. What happens to me? And he says, yeah, you're going to die. <laughs> and sure enough, the cupbearer is restored and the baker gets killed. Okay. And um, it says Genesis chapter 40. Now this is the next little section, verses 14 and 15. Uh, this is when he's speaking to the cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. Pretty reasonable request. You're going to get out. Please remember me. I don't belong here. Uh, but the cupbearer forgets. And so Joseph is once again uh, left behind. And, in fact, he forgets for two years. Now we do get numbers. 
He spends two years in the jail wondering, does this guy remember me? And finally, Pharaoh has a dream, and then the cupbearer remembers, oh, yeah, I know a guy who couldn't interpret dreams. And so he brings it up to Pharaoh. And this is the dream where God tells Pharaoh ahead of time that a season of wealth is going to be followed by a season of famine. But Pharaoh doesn't understand it. So Joseph receives the dream, interprets it, and then this is the words that Joseph speaks to Pharaoh. This is Genesis 41, verses 33 to 36. Joseph speaking, Now, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let them exact a fifth of the produce of the land in Egypt in the seven years' abundance, so 20% tax over seven years. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority, and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve of the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. He's got a strategic plan um, in this moment. And who does Pharaoh choose for this role? He looks around the room and he says, you seem like you've got it put together. We'll make you do it. And in a moment's notice, Joseph is in charge of all of Egypt. And so he goes from being in charge of his father's flocks to being sold into slavery and in charge of Potiphar's house to being sent to jail and in charge of the jail to being sent before Pharaoh's court to being in charge of all Egypt. And people see things about Joseph. They can acknowledge his competence and they put him in the right place. Well, the conclusion to Joseph's life is just as interesting but immensely complex. So I'm going to do this in a little bit less detail than some of the other sections. The famine arrives. The famine hits Canaan, Palestine, where his, the rest of his family is living, and they begin to starve. And the other brothers are sent to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, right? And Joseph, of course, recognizes them. But now, you know, he's been garbed in the multicolored tunic, exalted, and he's been garbed in a robe in, in, in Potiphar's house. And now he's, you know, he's decked out in Egyptian clothes, and nobody recognizes him uh, because of it. He's once again cloaked, but he's cloaked in power. And they end up in an audience with their brother. He doesn't recognize them. He can understand them talking to themselves in Hebrew, but pretends he doesn't understand. There's all sorts of games. And there's a really elaborate scheme that you can read that involves money, hiding, uh, deception, uh, theft, and all sorts of things. And what it looks like is Joseph is attempting to test his brothers. Have you really changed? Have you really changed? And the test comes down to, I want you to bring Benjamin down right? Your youngest brother down. And they're kind of like, but our dad loves him because he's the only one left. And then he, he arranges to have Benjamin captured. And then he basically watches their response to Benjamin being captured. Will you love the boy and our father more than you did me? And the brothers pass the test and he reveals himself where there's all sorts of, it's a lovely scene moment of weepy happiness where they find out their brothers who he says he was. And the whole family ends up moving to Egypt. And that, although it takes a long time to tell, is how the Israelites end up in Egypt because of the famine that God placed Joseph there for. Now, at the very end of the book of Genesis, Jacob dies. He dies in Egypt. Uh, it's a fun little bit. He's embalmed in the practices of the Egyptians. So Jacob gets mummified. Isn't that interesting to think about? Um, and the brothers get nervous because the dad is gone. Will Joseph take revenge on us for all we did? And so they send a fake message to him. They're like, hey, dad, before he died, said you should forgive all of us. Did you hear that? <laughs> they pass it on. And Joseph's response is quite remarkable. It's one of the most famous verses of the Bible. And I want to read the passage for you now. This is Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. So I'll read. This is the whole, the whole kind of section. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the, all the wrongs we did to him? What a lovely word, in full. 
What would he do in full? How would that repayment look? It'd be grim. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. What's his heart like? That he, you think that's what I'm like? You've always misjudged me and now you misjudge me too? It's, it's tender, isn't it? Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So once again, those words in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring this present result to preserve many lives. You meant evil, but God meant good. Now, this is a sentence that can hardly be understood apart from the story that got us to this point. Without a context, after all the evil Joseph had experienced, the betrayal, the abandonment, slander, jail time, being forgotten, all of that stuff... Joseph looks at it and says, you meant evil, but God meant good. And that's a profound, incredible wisdom of Joseph in action. And that's what I want us to reflect on for these last minutes now. How do we learn some of the wisdom of Joseph? And I've got two lessons in wisdom. So lesson number one in wisdom is going to be this. As far as you are able, judge every situation from God's perspective. As far as you are able... You need to judge every situation from God's perspective. And you have to ask yourself a tough question. If you were in Joseph's situation, would you have responded as he did? Most of us, the answer is no. If you were backstabbed by your siblings, some of you have been backstabbed by your siblings. Okay? If you were left in a pit to die, very few of you have been left in a pit to die. So I'm, I'm glad I can hold you up. If you were sold into slavery for a pretty cheap price... If you were falsely accused, and as a result, you lost your employment, that's happened to some of you, okay? If you were sent to prison wrongly for something you hadn't done, uh, if you helped someone get out, but you were forgotten for a further two years, no one cared about you or came to check on you. And then after, after all that, if you were given the enough power and authority to punish everyone who ever harmed you, would you respond like Joseph did? And I think our answer is no. Most of us would get our revenge. Proverbs 30, 21 and 22 says this, Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's satisfied with food, under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. I mean, this is the plot of every other Dickens novel and Jane Austen's story, Right? A forgotten person gets power and spends their whole life taking vengeance on the people around them. And something pretty ugly happens when, um, when the powerless get power, because it often comes with vengeance, a spirit of getting even and getting equal. And this is the natural order. And Joseph's wisdom is that he does not act according to the natural order. He takes God's perspective rather than the human perspective. 
Now, most of you have not been as ill-treated as Joseph, but you've had some struggles. You've watched while inferior co-workers get promotions while you're left behind. Inferior people have been promoted ahead of you, and you feel left behind. You've suffered while gossip among your friends behind your back has destroyed friendships, right? You've got friend circles where people gossip, and over, overnight you lose your friends because of it. You've been bullied by family members, co-workers, people in your life, people in authority. And you've been left waiting for seemingly no reason at all while everyone around you establishes their life. While they're getting married and having kids and buying homes, and you're still living at home with your parents, and you think to yourself, why is everybody else getting, what's happened to me? I'm stuck. And in those moments, you have to make a choice. Do I look at things from God's perspective or from mine? Have I given into bitterness or have I taken Joseph's position? Have I judged as far as I'm able the situation from God's perspective? And if you've chosen bitterness, and most of us have at some point or another, so I'm not highlighting anybody. I'm saying this is all of us. If you've chosen bitterness, what happens is that we begin to replay the wrong over and over in our heads. And we focus on how I've been misled and how I'm left behind. And we focus on our situation. We get tunnel vision for our moment of suffering. That idiot got the promotion. Well, I'm better qualified. I've served longer. I've done a better job serving this company. She got to keep her friends. Well, I'm the one who's on the outside. What's that all about? Why does he have to pick on me all the time? It's so frustrating. And why am I left behind while they're all doing this stuff? What's going on? Tunnel vision. We focus on our suffering. And instead of taking God's perspective, we worry over our circumstances, right? We fidget them and we focus on them. They become a source of anxiety. We endlessly review them. We obsess about what has happened, what could have happened, what might have happened. And we quietly plot a revenge. I'll show them one day, right? I'll get even. When I've got my stuff, then they'll see how good I really am. And this becomes our perspective. And the opposite decision is to try to adopt God's perspective, which is very challenging. And I want to give you four ways to do this. Four ways to adopt God's perspective. Um, and before I do this, I'll just say, I'll illustrate momentarily by um, something that happened with me. So this is not a grim circumstance, but it was a tough one. Uh, in the 2016, early 2016, I found out about this program to do a PhD in St. Andrews, and it had full fee scholarship, and I thought, wow, I'm never going to have the money to do this. This sounds like a great opportunity. So it's January, and I applied for the program. And um, most of the time, when you apply for a program like this, you find out pretty quickly whether you're going to be accepted or not. And they had a March 15th return date on, like, we'll let everybody know by March 15th. So March comes around, nothing. Uh, March 16th and 17th and 18th and 19th and on and on. So I sent an email, say, what's going on? They say, we're still waiting. And April comes by and nothing. And May comes by and nothing. And June and July, I didn't find out until August what was going on. It was a eight-month turnaround on what's typically a three-month time. So I had a very long period of time wondering, like, what's going on? What's happening? This isn't, like I said, it's not terribly interesting, not terribly exciting. But we were in this place of waiting and wondering in those moments, is it something I do? Can I work it? Do I make a phone call? I was thinking about it constantly. I was worrying it in my head, wondering what kind of things I should do and what did I need to do? I needed to take some of God's perspective. So here's four ways to take God's perspective. Number one is to admit your ignorance. Admit that you're ignorant in these moments. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I've been passed over. I don't know why I'm waiting. I don't know why this suffering is going on. I don't know why these people are being mean to me. But you know what? 
God does. You admit your ignorance and admit that God does know these things. Second thing we can do is we can admit powerlessness. You don't have any power. You don't. You can't control the situation. You can't change it. Some of you received some grim diagnoses. You can't change it by your power. You can't summon up willpower. Some of you are dealing with hurt relationships. You don't have any power to do these things. And who does have power? Well, God does. I have to trust in his power. This is part of taking his perspective. Third thing we can do is we can throw justice to the judge. Strong temptation in these moments to try and make it right, try and get even, try and fix it, try and stand for ourselves. But one of the things we have to do to get God's perspective is to make justice his business. Romans 12, 19 says this in a lovely way. Paul writes, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is something really beautiful about this verse. Look again. It's up on the screen in a second. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Revenge, beloved. Vengeance, my loved ones. Uh, Look at the contrast between them. But leave room for the wrath of God. In the middle of our love, we leave room for the wrath of God. And then he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. If anybody's going to get even, it's him. But the thing is, we're really bad at judging situations. We don't know what's going on in other people's lives. We can't determine what's happening. And because we have tunnel vision, we draw conclusions from our suffering that are often wrong. I figured it out. I know what's going on. When we get God's perspective and we realize, maybe I didn't have it all figured out in those moments. And so we delay that judgment by throwing justice to the judge and say, I don't know what's going on, Lord. I don't have any power in this, but you do. And I'm going to trust you to sort it out. This is God's perspective. And then the fourth thing we can do to gain God's perspective is to look for God's good in the midst of our bad. Look for where God is doing good things in the midst of our bad situations. And I, uh, there's some complex stuff here. God is always at work in every situation. doesn't matter how grim, how dark, how deeply disturbing. God is doing something. And we can be attentive to that good. We can watch for it. We can exalt it. We can highlight it and lift it up. But we're close to some ideas. We call this stuff theodicy. Theodicy is the kind of formal name for when we we talk about how good and evil work in a world governed by a good God. If God is good, why is there evil in the world? And I'm going to give you some really short answers to this for just a moment. I think God really is in the business of making good out of bad. It really is what he does. He takes the worst situations and he transforms them. He exalts, he lifts up, He does this. And in fact, this is the essence of our faith, that he takes our sin, wickedness, and evil in the world, funnels it through a cross, the greatest of evils, and transforms it into magnificence. This is the heart of what God does. This is how he approaches the world. Okay? He takes Joseph's enslavement and misery, and he uses it to save many lives. It's pretty exciting, isn't it, to see how God does this stuff. Now, one of the ways to keep mind of this is really helpful is to remember that evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil evil is parasitic. It has to have good things to exist. Think for a moment about rotten bananas. You guys, many of you right now have rotten bananas on your shelves at home, and the fruit flies are flying around them. Rotten bananas don't exist without good bananas, do they? There's no such thing. Moldy bread doesn't exist without good bread, does it? 
Evil only exists by being parasitic on what's good. It has no life of its own. But what can we do with rotten bananas? Banana bread. Amen. <laughs> what can we do with moldy bread? Penicillin. Now, these are maybe simple examples, but we can get a, an idea of how, how God can transform things that are on their way to sour and make really great things out of them. He could take your life and your situations, no matter how grim and dark, and he can transform it by his spirit and make something magnificent. This is what God is in the business of doing. Now there's a danger, a real danger. Christians, as Christians, we can get so excited about the big happy ending of our faith that God is going to make everything good that we can kind of like railroad people who are suffering. You come to me and you can say, look, this is going on in my life. It's really hard and really horrible. And I can say, you know what? God's going to do something good out of this right now. Maybe. Maybe not. He might also kill you. <laughs> Let's be honest. He may not heal you. He may not give you that promotion. You may be single the rest of your life. Okay? You may be broke. You may have to file for bankruptcy. It doesn't mean that because God is good that he's going to give you everything good, but he will do good things in your life. But we have to be so careful not to paste over people's suffering with the goodness of God. That's not how it works. And in fact, I want to suggest to you that in those moments, what we are feeling is our own anxiety. It's hard to watch people suffer. It's hard to watch people hurt. And it's very tempting to take the hurt and just kind of paste over it with a bit of paint say, oh good, I fixed it. And you can walk away. I gave them a word from the Lord today. They're going to be fine. No, they're not. So God's perspective means being ignorant and it means being powerless and it means giving justice to him. And it does mean looking for the good in the midst of the bad, but it doesn't mean pasting over the bad with good. It's different. God is good. Life is still hard. Okay. Second lesson from wisdom is a bit shorter than the other one. That's this. We can't control our circumstances, but we can control our characters. You can't control your circumstances. You've got no, no control. Well, some. But m most of them you can't. But you can control the kind of person you are in those circumstances. Joseph couldn't control the pit, his slavery, his employment with Potiphar, his imprisonment, nor even his rise to govern Egypt. What Joseph could control was the kind of person he was going to be in each of those situations. And he was proved upright each time. So you also can't control these things. You can't really control your promotions, what people say about you, power dynamics. You can't control your family life. You can't control the things that alter your future. Nothing is under your control. But what you can control is what kind of person are you going to be in these circumstances. And wisdom says, be someone like Joseph. So put bitterness aside. Put your plotting aside. Put your desire for vengeance aside and choose uprightness and character. And amazingly, Romans 12, the, right after the vengeance verse, Romans 12, 20 and 21, Paul quotes from the Proverbs. He says, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do loving things for people. Be kind, generous, good. We go through those fruits of the spirit like we went through weeks ago. And respond to the people in your life with those things. And it says that by doing this, you will overcome evil with good. A couple things to say. Just yesterday, 
we were here in this sanctuary to honor the life of Jack Forrester. Many of you knew him. A 30 years member of our church, thereabouts. What shone through, and I didn't know Jack. I became, I became your lead pastor on December 1st, and he, he passed away December 16th. What was clear about Jack was that his character was upright. His spirit was upright. He loved Jesus. It shone through every smile how much he loved his family and his friends and the people around him. I, not knowing him, got to know him yesterday. And he presents a challenge to us. What kind of character are you going to have? When your funeral happens, what are they going to say about you? Because you couldn't control your circumstances, but you can control the kind of person you're going to be in those circumstances. So be like Jack. Leave a legacy where people loved to be with you in these things. Now, let me say this again. Control of your character is no guarantee that God will give you good things. It's not a bargain where you're a good person and then God gives you a promotion. Sorry, folks. It doesn't work that way. The only, the only promotion you'll get, if your character gets good enough, he'll promote you to heaven, okay? Which is the end of your life on earth. That's the joke. Okay, sorry. I want you to have the wisdom of Joseph. I want you to try to see things from God's perspective, and I want you to focus on God's character, on our character in these trying circumstances. And through it all, don't be a jerk. Okay. And as we praise in a moment, and I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back forward. One more thing we can do to get God's perspective is we can sing. We can sing God's praise, and we can lift him up because it changes how we feel and changes our perspective on those circumstances. Let me pray for you, and then let's worship. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Um, I thank you for the story of Joseph. I thank you for his wisdom and how it can teach us. And I ask this morning actually want to pray more specifically than that. Lord, I think I'm thinking there are people in this room this morning, Lord, people listening to us right now who feel the burden of their circumstances and are weary and embittered and tired. And I pray for your spirit to reach out and shine light on the prison of their suffering. You are good, Lord, but your goodness never pastes over suffering. I pray for that wholesome, real, deep goodness to be shown to your people today.